Thanks, James. Oh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Marcus, and the classic joke is if we have met before, my name is still Marcus. Uh, uh, I'm one of the student ministers here at Bexley North. It's so great to see you all here today. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the story of Noah, as we've just read. And I think for many of us, this is probably a story we've heard in some form or, or another uh, throughout our lives. It's the, it's the quintessential Sunday school story, isn't it? Uh, but as we look closely at the text, what I'm praying is that we'll see the greatness, the power, and the justice of our God. So why don't I pray now and ask that he'd show that to us in his word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to your word now, give us eyes that see the reality of our own hearts and minds, and give us a knowledge of the truth of your righteousness and justice. Give us clarity on who you are and remind us of the goodness of being in Christ. And in his name I pray. Amen. Well, let's begin. Are you going to want to keep your Bibles open at Genesis 6 to start with? And our passage today starts at one of the lowest points in human history. Take a look at Genesis 6 verse 5. It says this, When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme in his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Just think about that. This is a terrible time to be around. Just a couple of chapters back in Genesis 1 and 2, God saw what he had made and it was good. But by the time we reach Genesis 6, The sin of humanity has spread out all across the earth. God saw what man had made and it was evil. And this evil and wickedness is everywhere. It's like a bad smell in a public toilet. It's just everywhere. And sin is so widespread that there's no goodness anywhere. Every scheme that man's mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Now, in some ways, this is much like the time we find ourselves in now, right here today. We find it hard to go anywhere without seeing the effects of sin on display. We see homelessness in the streets of the CBD. We hear gossip and lies spread in cafes and school car parks. We see dodgy deals being made in work corridors and there's bullying on our TV screens almost every night of the week. Gnomes and I, we like to watch The Block and we've been shocked this year that the TV show has gone from a show about building up to a show about cutting other people down. But if we're really honest, part of the reason we find it so hard to avoid the effects of sin is because our own hearts are sinful. We're the ones walking past the homeless man clinging to our wallets. We're the the ones who love to listen to the latest news about other people's shortcomings. We're the ones who turn a blind eye to corruption in order to keep our own jobs, to protect our own. And we're the ones who approve these things by tuning into TV each night. 
We see wickedness everywhere because our hearts are sinful too. And so we live in a world full of wickedness just like today's passage. We might not have it to the same degree. The New Testament attests to the fact that there are good things happening in the world as we speak. But sin and wickedness is definitely widespread, just like it was back then. And it's so widespread that it's in us too. And what makes this all even worse is the effect of our sin. Take a look at Genesis 6 verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. This is a huge change. As I said earlier, God saw creation in Genesis 1 and 2 and it was very good. But now, God is so deeply saddened, he regrets making people in the first place. Have you ever considered the fact that sin, our sin, the things that we do, it grieves God? God is deeply, deeply saddened by the things that we do that aren't in line with his will. When we lie, that saddens God. When we're greedy, that grieves God. Even when we do the right things, but out of the wrong motives, that makes God sad. We hate it when people do these things to us, and yet we do it to God every day. Now, just as an aside, while we're thinking about the effect of sin, when we confess sin, whether alone to God or here at church, do we have this perspective on our own sin? We are blessed to be in a church that confesses sin as part of our services each week. But when we do this, when we confess our sin to God, whether alone or at home, Uh, or even here together at church, do we feel the weight of the things we've done? Do we see the grief that we've caused God? Because our sin deeply, deeply saddens God. I think this means we can't be flippant about the way that we confess our sin to God. To pray with our lips and not appreciate the weight of what we've done is to pretend that the offence that we've caused God doesn't actually matter that much. That it doesn't affect Him. Because these aren't arbitrary rules. This is a relationship with God that we've destroyed. The God who loves us, we've turned our back on Him and caused Him great grief and so I think when we confess our sins we need to do it sincerely from the heart knowing the, the offence that we've caused anyway back to the passage and we've seen that things in Genesis 6 are bad they're bad and so what will God do actually let's flip this question what would you do Uh, In this room right now, 
we have lots of different people in some kind of leadership. We've got uh, teachers, we've got project managers, we've got team leaders. If the people that you were responsible for at work or throughout life completely disregarded you, stopped speaking to you at all, and just started hurting one another, what would you do? And how long would it take you before you took action? Because I think one of the things we should notice here is how patient God is. If you have a quick skim back over chapter 5, you'll see that this is all after hundreds and hundreds of years of corruption. See, never in Scripture do we ever see an impatient, an impulsive, or an irrational God. The decisions he makes are decisions made out of patience, not pettiness. And so look at what God decides to do after generation after generation of sin in chapter 6, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off from the face of the earth mankind whom I created together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And then jump down to verse 13, chapter 6, verse 13. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. See, after generation upon generation of sin upon sin upon sin, God is going to destroy every living creature. Because the corruption of humanity, the sin of the human heart, has seeped out into everything. God is going to completely undo the work that he's done. Because take a look at the list of things he'll destroy in verse 7. He's going to destroy mankind, whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. This is an intentional reversal of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2. See, God is going to stamp out corruption on the earth. God is like the perfect eternal ICAC. He's perfect. He gets it right every time. And rather than stamping out corruption using a a court system... But let's be honest, I don't completely understand. I don't really understand how that all works. Instead of doing that, God is going to send a flood, a destroying deluge. See, take a look in Genesis 6, verse 17. Understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die. God sends a destructive deluge to undo his regret. Again, he's not being petty here. This isn't a decision he's making off a whim. This is the creation he's rejoiced over that has turned to sin and injustice everywhere. Now I think uh, we might be tempted to disregard this as an issue for people at that time, 
You know, we might say to ourselves that things are different now, but as we saw before, we're still sinful. Things are a little bit different now, but our sin still affects God. And God's plan for justice coming is much more intense. Take a look at Acts 17 up on the screen. Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. That's Jesus. At the great resurrection, when Jesus returns, when he comes back, each one of us will be called to give an account before God. God has set a day for an even greater judgment than the flood. But like us, the people in Genesis are not without hope. Take a look at Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And then jump down to 6, verse 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. And Genesis 7, verse 5, you might need to flip a page. Genesis 7, verse 5. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. See, right here in Genesis, we get a sole, faithful, obedient man. We get Noah. And if you read through chapters 6 to 9 of Genesis, you see two things. Firstly, Noah isn't perfect. His righteousness and blamelessness are really only in comparison to his contemporaries. And then in chapter 9, you see that Noah sins in a really big way. I'll, I'll leave you to go read that for yourself. But the other thing we see about Noah in these chapters is that he is faithful to God. Everything God commands, he does. Even when God says, build a giant boat in the middle of an arid desert... Noah faithfully follows the commands of God. Take a look at how the author of Hebrews puts it. should come up on the screen, Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. Noah is a faithful man. He walks with God. And so God, out of his compassion and grace, brings Noah a literal lifeboat, a plan for the ark. Take a look at Genesis 6, verse 14. 6, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it with pitch inside and outside. Pitch is kind of like tar. It's meant to keep the boat watertight. And then jump down to 6 verse 17, Genesis 6 verse 17. Understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die, but I will establish my covenant with you 
and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your sons' wives. God says to Noah, I will save you from this coming judgment. Put your faith in me and hop aboard. And God is faithful to his promise. He saves Noah and his family. It's a bit subtle in the text, but in so many ways, God is the hero of this story. He is the saviour. So jump down to Genesis 7 verse 16. Genesis 7 verse 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. And take a look at 7 verse 23. 7 verse 23. He, that's, that's God, he wiped out every living thing that was on the surface of the ground from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawled to birds of the sky and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. See, God is the one who shuts Noah up into the ark. God is the one who protects Noah. While God is destroying every living creature, here he is, protecting Noah. Because God made the trees to grow, to make wood. God gave Noah the plans for the ark. God shut up the ark door. And God sustained the boat in this powerful storm. God is the one who saves. Now just as another aside, those verses we read earlier that James read for us, uh, in chapter 7 verses 21 to 23, they're devastating, aren't they? They're really quite crushing. Um, I was talking to Naomi, my wife, earlier this week, and she said that... as she thinks through this story, as she reads it, she finds it really awful. It's really hard to read because there's only one way for each of these living creatures to have died. They would have drowned. They would have lost their breath because to drown is to give up your breath. There's no way to breathe anymore. When God destroys these living creatures, what he does is he takes away the breath of life that he gave them when he made them. But this is what the God of justice had to do to stamp out the corruption, the sin, the evil, the wickedness, the corruption of humanity. But even though the whole world is destroyed, Noah, his family, and everything on board the ark is saved by God. Take a look at Genesis 8 verse 1. 8 verse 1. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, 
and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. And then jump down to 8 verse 14. 8 verse 14. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Noah and the ark and his family and all the animals aboard make it through the blood, through, through the flood. He's saved, back on dry land. And this act of graciousness from God will actually result in a new humanity. So take a look at 9 verse 1. Genesis 9 verse 1. This is right after they get off the boat. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every living creature will be food for you. As I gave green plants, I have given you everything. Does that sound a little familiar to you? It's Genesis 1 and 2. Here again, be fruitful and multiply. Eat from the trees, rule the animals. God, through Noah and the ark, has brought salvation and started a new humanity. But as I said earlier, just, just like the people in Noah's time, we too are in a similar spot. We saw in Acts 17, Jesus is coming, and when he does, he'll judge humanity. And so what is our salvation? Should we all start building boats too? Uh, should we head down to Bunnings after, at Bunnings at Kingsgrove? After morning tea and, and buy some wood and maybe some tar, some hammer and, and, and some nails? Well, of course not. Look at what God says in Genesis 8 verse 31. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. See, Jesus' coming is different. It's not a flood but God incarnate, Jesus Christ as King returning. Even an ark the size of Noah's will be like a dinghy in a perfect storm. See, rather than being in an ark, we need to be in Christ. We need to be in Christ. See, have you ever noticed how often the writers of the New Testament letters use the phrase, in Christ. In fact, in Christ or in Jesus or in Him is used more than any other way to describe Christians in the New Testament. It's not followers, it's not disciples, it's not even the word Christians. That really only comes up once or twice. For us that have our faith in Jesus, in Christ is how we are described. Because when you place your faith in Christ... You are in Him. You are united with Jesus. And that means that everything Jesus does and accomplishes gets applied to us as well. A sin-free life that Jesus lived, 
Well, being united with Christ takes away our sin. Knowledge of God, being in Christ, gives us an intimate relationship with the Father. Protection from the coming judgment, being united with Christ, gives us a shield from the coming wrath. But how does it work? Why will being in Christ work as our salvation when he returns? We'll take a look closely at what happens when Jesus dies on the cross in Matthew 27. It should come up on the screen. Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Uh, Now that word spirit... uh, when we think of the word spirit, we usually think of kind of like the word soul, and that's kind of right. That's, that's kind of what we're thinking of. What Jesus gave up was the breath of life. The breath of life that Jesus had given to mankind when he made everything, which he took on in his incarnation, he gives it up. Jesus voluntarily gave up his spirit. He gave up his breath so that those who are found in him could be saved. See, when you place your faith in Jesus, when he returns, you'll stand before the throne on that day and you'll say, it's nothing about me. I am in Christ and he has already taken the judgment on my behalf. And so we've got to do what Jesus says in Matthew 24. It should come up on the screen. Take a look. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. And then the next slide. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Therefore, be alert, be ready, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. See, Jesus says that the day of his return, the day when this judgment will come, it could be any moment now. And he says, don't make the same mistake that they did in Genesis 6. He he says, be prepared, be ready, be in Christ now. Don't make the same mistake that they did in Genesis 6. See, they thought Noah was silly. Building a boat in the middle of an arid desert? That's crazy. And if you're in Christ, people will think you're silly. Following a Jewish bloke from 2,000 years ago? Crazy. But don't make the same mistake that they did. Get on board. Make sure that you're in Christ. Put your faith in Him. Be a part of the new humanity that Christ has made through His death and resurrection. And if you want to know how, if you, if you need a, a couple more details, please come and chat to me after the service. I'd, like, I'd love to talk that through with you afterwards. 
But the other thing we need to do is make sure we call others to be united with Christ too. Call out that same warning that Jesus does. Because from Bexley North to Botswana, we're all guilty of sin. All humanity needs to be called aboard. As Noah was chipping away at building his ark, he made public the world's need to join him. And so as you, each day, chip away at building God's kingdom, make public the need to be in Christ. Invite people to come and read the Bible with you. Invite people to the Life Series. Tell people in your workplaces, at school, in the car parks, over coffee, their need of the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Because in the coming judgment, there's only one lifeboat that'll survive the storm. That's Christ Jesus and those who are in him. Let's pray in his name now. Our Father, we look at our world and we look at our own hearts and we see sin, we see wickedness, And we see the need for justice. For some of us in the room, we might find this sin alluring, tempting. For some of us in the room, we might find this sin crushing. But Lord, we know that you provide hope. Father, we pray that you would remind us of the great news of the gospel. How good it is to be in you. Lord, let our lives and our lips declare the greatness of the gospel. And we pray that you would bring others around us to be in Christ like we are. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.